So my guest uh, on this podcast is Dr. Peter Vila, who is um, who's in um, in Portland, um, and uh, he's been in practice for a number of years. I'm going to talk about that, and I I like to feature a lot of younger people who are trying to find their way, trying to understand it. And I think the other thing I find really enjoyable about the podcast is getting to know people that I may not otherwise get to know because the meetings seem so hurried and rushed, and you don't get a chance to really like talk to people about things that matter, right? I mean. We run into each other in the hall. We talk for five minutes and and you walk away and say, geez, I would have liked to ask him about you know, bringing on a plastic surgeon or something like that. And how do you do that? And um, I have made every mistake in the book. So, um, and I, I, I like uh, my responsibility is to help the next generation because, you know, my generation is not going to be here forever. And, and we, in facial plastic surgery, have been scrappers for years. And so uh, I don't ever want us to become complacent. So. Uh, Pete, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your crazy schedule. Um, and you're someone who actually reached out to me, right? And so you reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in, in having me on your podcast? Yeah, I mean, you uh, you put a little thing out and I said, listen, if you want to hear my perspective, I'm happy to share. First of all, thank you. Um, the uh, the podcast that you've been doing, like you said, uh, has been going on a while. And if it's one of those, if I knew then what I knew now kind of things where it's just hard to find some of that information. So it is really nice to have that be a resource. So thank you for doing that. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, you're welcome. And you know, so one of the things I try to do, man, I get, I get hit up and solicited on a weekly basis. But one of the things that I like about this podcast is it's totally unfiltered and there's no industry. Now I've, I've interviewed a few people like Josh de Blasio, who, I have a lot of respect for because of the way he conducts himself at the meetings. And, um, but I really try to minimize the number of people who I interview from industry because I do not want this to become a commercial. And there's very few places that other than maybe the AFBRS business um, forum that we can speak frankly, you know, we can speak frankly. And, and I think if we're really genuinely interested in helping each other, um, we need to be honest. And to me, probably the biggest compliment I get is when I get off the podium and people come up and say, thank you for being so honest, because I wish that I had been. So, you know, how I, so you, you, um, you trained in uh, St. Louis, right? Um, that's right. I was at WashU for residency. That's awesome. You know, Mike, I've known Mike Nyack for a, I remember when he interviewed with me as a, um, and his littermate, Jeannie Chung, did a fellow with me, fellowship with me. And I've known Mike since then. And um, I've been there to his anatomy course and whatever. Um, it, it, you know, it sounds like, I mean, I know it's a great program. I know Mike's done great things there with, you know, his part of it. He's not as involved with the residents as much, you know, now as he was. Um, where was home, Pete? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I've been all over the place. Um, I was born in Miami, Florida, grew up mostly in the Midwest, and then went out east for you know, med school and yeah. came back to the Midwest for training. So it's kind of all over. I don't know that, that I have like one place I would say this is my home, but I guess yeah. where I currently am uh, for now, yeah. So when you were in Chicago, when you did, because I, you know, I did my fellowship in Chicago, um, who, you, who were you exposed to there in, uh, you know, what program did you, did you do in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery? Yeah, so Chicago was uh, sort of a natural extension from WashU. So Regan Thomas and Doug Seidel were uh, okay. involved with that fellowship. Uh, Regan Thomas was at UIC for the long time. 
So is Regan. Exactly. I mean, I've known Regan, you know, <laughs> we've all known each other forever in a year. You know, Regan's another, just a prince. You know, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's like your favorite uncle. He's just a nice guy. You know, I, I learned how to talk from him. He's a very skilled uh, conversationalist and just good with patience. And so that was great. And Doug Seidel is, is phenomenal. He's a great surgeon, um, not as involved with the academy stuff, but he's a phenomenal right. surgeon. And so he's uh, just a good guy to learn from and and just uh, spend time with. So it was a great experience there in Chicago. And that was the lockdown. So that was a weird year. That was uh, all of a sudden in March, we couldn't really you know, do the things we were doing. We were doing like a facelift a week and a few rhinos and all that. And all of a sudden it came to a screeching halt. So it was an interesting time to do fellowship for sure. 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 So yeah, a very interesting time. And, you know, I'm going to put my little plug in for the AFPRS and I encourage you to get involved and stay involved. I mean, you know, the worst thing is becoming a product of your success with complacency. And, um, you know, the one thing I can say about our academy is, there are brothers and sisters and you, you know, you can go to the multi-specialty meetings. You can uh, contribute and get on the podium and all this other stuff. By the way, it's not that hard to get on the podium at the Academy either. You just have to be a little, you know, you just got to submit your stuff and whatever. And there's a point where you have some interesting things to say, things that you can, you know, that you can teach other people. But I will say my deepest and strongest relationships come from you know people in the AFPRS because they are our brothers and sisters and so don't don't ever forget that and and I would say you have to force yourself and push yourself um I'll tell you a little story I had a, a woman come up to me at the last meeting and say you know I know you've been involved forever and blah 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 how do I get involved and I said um remember when you you know we I interviewed you and we talked about it and I said go to the meetings and this and that and the committee meeting she said well yeah but that like requires like getting there a day early and the expenses I said yeah I know I've done it for the last 30 years you know so so um it's my little plug for the academy um it's really important because if the academy were to go away your advocacy would be gone and your ability to do what you want to do and call what you call yourself, which would, would be gone as well. So how did you, you know, where's your, where's your, your family now? So they're, you know, I'm Hispanic. So we all kind of moved around together. <laughs> so they came with me when we were in St. Louis, they moved uh, to where we were because I had my son there and yeah. then uh, they came with us to Chicago and I was in California for a little while. They came with us out there. So they're like, they lived like 15 minutes away from me, which is great because my wife's also a physician. So we both work a lot. And um, so, yeah, here's home. Got it. So how'd you pick Portland? So, yeah, that was a big, you know, big unknown for me. I, so I went to California um, because if you had asked me years ago what my plan was, I would have told you that I was planning on doing academics and coming out of fellowship. That was the plan. Um, and so all of a sudden with COVID, that was an interesting time to try and find a job. I didn't really know any chairs that were looking to expand the facial plastics presence personally. And, um, so I moved to California basically on my own and just hung a shingle and started doing my own thing. So, California, you know, completely. Yeah. So it was just kind of a, Hey, I like this area. We have some friends there, you know, it's good weather. Why not? Right. Um, so we were in the Bay area in uh, Marin County. And uh, just north of San Francisco. And um, so I was there for about a year and a half. And the goal was to like, okay, let's see how this goes. Because eventually I'm just going to find an academic job and start that. Um, and so during that process, I was kind of just using my network, talking to people. Hey, how do you do this stuff? You know, like I, I didn't really know much about how to build a practice. Um, 
or how to, you know, get out in the community and start meeting people. And I know that's something you talk about a lot on your podcast. The last few speakers you've had have not easy. Uh, it's not easy. talked about that. It's, painful. it's not. And it's just something I just wasn't exposed to. So I kind of just had to figure it out on the fly. We did that. I was getting pretty deep into talks with a couple of academic institutions and, you know, thinking that was what I was going to do. And then one of the people that I was talking to a lot was Kim in Portland. And um, he's just a really transparent guy. I like him. I think he has a good reputation with patients. He gets good results. And he was very forthcoming with me about like, hey, like I would ask him like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, who do you use for this? And he was always just super responsive. And that was really nice. And so eventually, actually, I spoke with you at the VCS meeting. That's when we first met. Yeah. Um, I think it was 2021. Or maybe 2022. And, um, you know, at that meeting, I actually, you know, uh, Mike had actually reached out to me and said, like, hey, do you want to just come work here? I think I bugged him so much. He was finally like, just work here. <laughs> so it worked out. I, you know, I flew out to Portland and it wasn't so much about the geographic location as it was just here's a guy where I've got a built in mentor, somebody that I respect a lot. He's got a very busy practice. So like very quickly could get up and running. And I actually thought long and hard about it. And even though I wasn't initially planning on doing private practice, um, I kind of pivoted and I said, you know what? I think this is actually, I can't turn this down. Like I've got a great built-in mentor here and somebody that I can learn a lot from doing facelifts and rhinoplasties and all these things that I really enjoy doing. Um, so I, I kind of pulled out of the academic thing and, and decided to come here. So how was your, I mean, that's a big decision, right? I, how was your wife with that? Yeah, she's a saint. So um, my wife is just incredible and very supportive. And, um, you know, she's an anesthesiologist, so she's finished training earlier than I did very and has been working longer than I have. Right? I mean, you can go anywhere with that. Yeah, exactly. It is very portable. So she's been amazing <clears throat> with that. Unlike me, I'm very much a risk taker. She kind of wants to be a homebody and just be, you know, a regular somewhere. And so it's been tough for her, but you know, I find to make this work. Say you're a risk taker. You know, I've I've talked to a number of people who have planned on doing academics and end up in private practice. And you know, I'm a risk taker. I'll be honest. I am. I I have never bought a lottery ticket. I don't like to gamble, but I will take prudent risks. Um, so I find that interesting because you know here you I mean typically typically people going to academics are one of two camps. One, well, three camps. I want to be an academician. Number two, I want to get an academician, get up to my elbows and in my armpits and blood and guts, become a really good surgeon, do you know, be able to feel like I can take rib out in a surgery center, and um, you know, do that for five years. And then those who you know, um, who just want to go in into into private practice because it does, which is which you know, it does have its share of risk. I mean, or some people go in academics just to mitigate risk. How, you know, how did you switch that? Because it, um, I I find that a lot of people that go into academics, really, those who don't want to take risks are very risk averse, and that's okay. How did you switch gears? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, just talking to people from my cohort, um, I, I agree with that assessment. I think it was hard for me because the part that I like about the academic world is very much the teaching. I've done a lot of research. I really enjoy the research process. I write a lot. I like that. Um, I still plan on doing that. I still review for the journal. I still, you know, I'm on like a grant review committee now for the IFPRS. And, you know, so I keep up with that stuff. But um, for me, you know, and I'll be honest. So in, in San Francisco, uh, I had a ptosis repair, so my eyelids. And uh, so I went to a well-known institution. and. Um, 
just, you know, doctors have a certain sense of how, you know, the whole experience works from the doctor's side. So as a patient, I went to this very reputable institution that everyone has heard of um, and had my surgery there. And it was just the surgeon was great. The results were great. But like the experience of being a patient there, I was like, this is how could I possibly do this to my patients? Like, this is awful. And, you know, this is a well-known place that supposedly, you know, the best and whatever. So for me, that was kind of one more strike against it where I said, you know what, if I want to do the type of surgeries that I really enjoy doing, facelifts, rhinoplasties, all that stuff, um, and I I like the most stuff, and I like the recon, I really enjoy facial nerve too, but if I really want to do this at a high level, it's going to be really hard to give my patients the best experience at an academic center. And I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm sure there are great institutions out there that are doing it, but, you know, I just thought, here's a place, you know, with all the other stuff that we already talked about, I just thought, here's a place where I just, I can't turn this down. And, you know, it just made sense to me at the time. And I think it's worked out great. Um, but it was very much a pivot for me. Yeah. I mean, it's a big decision because it's also, you know, the financial risk at a time when you can't afford really be taking a lot of risk, depending on what your, you know, what your educational, uh, you know, loans, all that other stuff. There's a book I'm going to ask you to read, which I don't think you'll regret. It's called The Customer of the Future. And um, I forget the author's name, um, but we have incorporated it into our, and it basically, the woman who wrote the book, it wrote it pre-COVID. So it when I was reading it during COVID, I thought to myself, wow, this is like totally insightful and brilliant. But she basically said that, you know, it, in the future, it, your competitor down the street is not your competitor. Your competitor is the mindset of people dealing with Amazon. And the re- reason people use Amazon is because it's so easy, right? So we 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 went through a process where we built our processes all around the patient. It's not going to happen in an academic institution. And if you and 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 we realize that we truly are customer centric, and the only way to be customer centric is to build a process around the patient. Hospitals are not set that way, and you know if they if if the administrators in the hospitals you want to know why the business world snickers at them, and you know as far as you know from a business point of view, is that they're still provincial, and you know and and but I do find it interesting that you. You know, you took, I mean, for me, what I mentor my, you know, young guys to do, or women, is, uh, you know, if, yeah, if you want the experience, roll up your sleeves, set a timeline. And, but there are, and I can tell you, there are a few success, or, uh, success stories. I mean, my last fellow, Jenna Van Beck, went back to Peter, or, you know, University of Minnesota. I think she's got a, a tremendous situation there. Um, Ziad Katrib, you know, went to, uh, but you never know when there's going to be a change in a chair. So it's always important to have your plan B <clears throat> on the outside. I will tell you, the sooner you can make that gutsy move and having a more private institution that's run like a business, um, the more you will start to gain ground as far as your asset, which is basically the equity you have in the capital that you're building on your practice your rhinop you know who you are in destination i'm impressed with what you've done in just a short period of time when you went so so when did you start in in your practice 
So I've been here just over a year now. So it's February of uh, last year. You've been there for a year. That's crazy. So how did you start? Yeah, I mean, so it's this is where, you know, and you mentioned like why I reached out to you. This is why. Because when I was in the position of trying to figure out where I'm going with this, you finish fellowship, you want to hit the ground run, running and just start operating and use all these skills that you've been training for years for. And suddenly I found myself like, where do I go from here? What do I do? And so, um, you know, joining someone that I trusted, that I didn't feel like he was trying to take advantage of me. Um, I felt like he had at least, you know, my best interest in terms of letting me grow and letting me figure out what kind of surgeon I want to be and what type of things do I want to focus on. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of conversations that have to happen in terms of um, how that all works out. You know, the financial stuff all works out. Um, you got to figure out the nuts and bolts of it. But I just had a good feeling about it and um, and still do. And so coming here the past year has been fantastic. Like I'm I'm operating way more than I would have if I had still been on my own trying to figure out like, you know, okay, let's, you know, build this or build that or you know, whatever. And um, it just kind of like set everything up. Um, so, you know, it's tough because when I was looking around, it's like, well, what, how do I make this happen? Right. And um, you know, there are only so many people out there. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, geographic locations, like I didn't have like one, you know, there's a lot of people like Sid Starkin, for example, going back to Arizona, I just, you know, heard his, that's a great story. Like, I, he I knew would, you wanted to be in that area. His, his story is very unusual. True, true. Not easy. But like, you know, the, it's, it's an example of like, this is a person who wanted to be in X location, right? Or like people who, you know, you had Grace Peng on here talking about her story and like, you know, people who go to like, well, I'm going to go back to this area, right? I didn't have that. So for us, it's almost like, you know, it sounds like a good thing at first where you're like, oh, I could go anywhere. But then it's almost daunting, like you said, because you just, <laughs> you got to pick somewhere, right? And there's so many different options. So, you know, it was less about the geography for me and more about, okay, where can I find a place that will allow me to do what I mentioned? Really that's a really important point, Pete. I, you know, it's the, 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 so I, I, I I'm in a lot of business develop, a lot of business development groups. And, I have friends who've done you know, acquisition after acquisition, and they'll tell you the most important thing are the people and the substance behind it, not just the location, not just the EBITDA, whatever the, you know, the, the profitability. And, and it's the same thing here. I mean, if you pick someone who's reasonable, and I think you're going to see more of this too, because my generation is probably the first generation to do just exclusively facial plastic surgery. You know, five, 10 years before me, they did ENT and they transitioned. Um, I never put tubes in an ear, you know? And that generation, my generation is getting ready to, to retire, to wind down, which, and it took them 20 or 30 years to build a, a revenue stream, to build a reputation, providing there can be some fairness between and I, I think the biggest success that we have with the people that I have is um, I am so fair because I realize to get to the next level, we have to be fair to each other. And it sounds like you've got a great situation, but then maybe the, 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 the lesson learned here or the pearl for people looking is it go, it's the substance that is there and who you're working with. Um, so Dr. Kim, right? Yep. Michael Kim? Michael Kim, yep. How long has he been in practice? 
So he's just over 10 years out. He was at OHSU for a long time. He was at Mayo for a few years before that. And then uh, this is now three years that he's had his office here in Northwest Portland. And, um, you know, going through fellowship interviews and things like that, you, you, you meet a lot of people, right? And right. so I met Mike uh, during my fellowship interview. We kind of hit it off, you know, we listened to similar music and just talk about whatever, but like we kind of stayed in touch. And that was where for people looking for stuff, you got to use that network, right? And so we stayed in touch. He was very responsive to questions and very helpful, very open and transparent, which was amazing. And I'm sure plenty of other people can attest to this. He's very open about this stuff. So, um, you know, he's just one of these people. And so we we got along super well. Um, for somebody who's in my or where I was looking for that position, you just have to like use your network. Don't be afraid to reach out to people and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for this, looking for that. Do you know anyone? Um, and so, and I was knocking on doors, emailing the entire country, you know, I mean, like, it's not a lack of trying to find people. It was very much, you know, using my whole entire network. So I'm just lucky that it worked out well. Um, you obviously, there's no guarantees, but like, you do have to take some risk, but you make the best decision that you can. And I think, uh, for me, it was a great decision. And for us both, I mean, it's, it's going well. There's a variety, cause I've talked a lot. There's a variety of reasons why. A senior person will take on a junior person. Why do you think he brought you uh, brought you on? Yeah, the main to boil it down to one thing. I think the main thing is he is now at a point where he's not trying to like run the world with all the facelifts and rhinoplasties and operate seven days a week. So he um, was busy enough and booked out far enough that he was actually losing patients because they were waiting so long that they couldn't get in to see him. So, you know, when I came on, it was a way to very quickly start doing the injectables for the practice, uh, do the minimally invasive stuff for the practice so that he could just focus on the surgery and start, you know, working on his list of patients and then not have to worry about the other stuff. So it, it's good for both of us because that way I get busy quickly and then he can just focus on the stuff he wants to do. Yeah, I think the the how important do you think it is that you find someone that's senior that doesn't have an ego? Yeah, that's all of it, right? I mean, that's the that's what's going to determine if you're still there in a few years versus, you know, a year, right? So um, that is super hard to figure out. And I had the benefit of knowing him over, you know, an extended period of time where I, I kind of had a sense of, you know, where his sort of motivations are and things like that. Um, that's hard. And so having somebody ideally that you've known for a while, either that you met early on in residency, going to the AAFPRS meetings and just talking to people. Um, is huge because, you know, these things don't just happen overnight, right? Like it takes time. It's a process to where, hey, you know, I'm thinking about maybe hiring somebody in the near future. And then you kind of start, you know, putting your feelers out. So that takes a long time. And I would recommend people start early in residency, you know, reach out to people. Hey, you know, I live in, you know, such and such location. There's a surgeon there who might be hiring. Just reach out to them. Say, hey, like, and I'll be finishing fellowship in 2025 or whatever. Like, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Um, nothing wrong with that. You know, the worst they can say is no, or just don't respond. Yeah. The reality of being someone more senior is that, you, you know, the answer isn't working harder, right? You build this machine and if you're reasonable about it and you're willing to give things up, I, I do know that sometimes it fails because the senior people are just willing to give up the good stuff. I mean, what, what did, did you guys have a conversation? Like, I'm willing to give up this. I'm willing to give up that. Um, I'm going to market you for this. I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to market? I mean, those are, these are questions that, you know, you young people want to know. Am I, you know, 
And yet, um, I can tell you this from a senior's point of view, you know, a senior guy doesn't who's been doing it for 30 years or 20 years or whatever it is, doesn't want to see like entitlement, like, well, when how are we going to divide up the faces? I mean, that like would just piss me off. I mean, because it worked, took you years to get to that. How did you, what was that conversation like? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a huge part of it as well. And um, the way we decided to go about it was basically we, when patients call in, they can say, hey, I'm, I want to see Dr. Kim for a rhinoplasty. Perfect. Yeah. That one is easy. Or, hey, I saw Dr. Vila's post on whatever. I want to see him for this. Great. When it's sort of ambiguous, then it's like, okay, like you, you're interested in a facelift, for example. Dr. Kim is booked out till October. Dr. Vila's booked out till, you know, April or whatever. Um, you know, who, who would you like to see? The consultation fee is this for Dr. Kim. The consultation fee is this for Dr. Vila. Um, you know, whatever. Some people have like researched him for years, followed him on Instagram for years. They want to wait till, you know, 2025 to, for their consult with Dr. Kim. Other people don't. And so for the people that don't, it's like, okay, there's a younger guy that can see you sooner. Great. And, you know, so for us, it kind of works out that way pretty well. Um, I've been very busy doing, you know, cosmetic facial plastic surgery. It's been great. Faceless rhinos, bluffs, all that good stuff, you know. Um, so, and he's still busy operating consistently and has a huge list of patients. So it's worked out for us well, but I think that's definitely an issue that needs to be discussed upfront before joining a practice is like, how is this going to work in terms of marketing? We haven't really had to do any, um, because he's just got such a backlog of patients and it's, you know, it's not a massive area within, you know, it's not Beverly Hills. Right. So like there, there are less surgeons here. So his name is relatively well-established. And so. Um, you know, obviously I'm part of that team now. And so if people come in to see Dr. Kim, it's like, okay, I'll see Dr. Vila because he's, I can see him sooner. Yeah. So does, um, does Dr. Kim do any injectables at all? I think for the established patients that really want to continue with yeah. him specifically, he'll do it, but I've, you know, I've seen plenty of his old Botox patients or whatever. And so. How about, um. Like you mentioned Mo's. I mean, how do you, do you still, or is he doing Mo's? Do you still do Mo's? I mean, how does that all work? Yeah, so we don't take insurance in the practice. So it's all purely out of pocket. So um, the he does not do uh, like Mo's reconstruction or anything like that. I We just don't have the setup for it here. I've had a couple, you know, a little scarbage, just little things like that where we'll just do it out of pocket. And, you know, patients understand that it's not going to be covered by insurance. And that's and that's that. It's pretty straightforward. But yeah, it's definitely not like a large oh, portion of the practice. I would imagine there's not a lot of it now, right? I mean, because I mean, it just we we actually are set up for it, and Slaughter loves it, and he has got a huge following, so it allows him to separate, um, you know, those patients and that from the mainstream, so it really doesn't tarnish or undermine the surgical practice. But it's really hard to do in a lot of practice to bring those patients in. We have a separate team, you know, that deals with insurance and all that whole thing. Um, you know, it's given us a little bit of a unique advantage in that he can pound out more skin cancer, run two rooms in in a day, and you know, it's good for the residents, it's good for him, we enjoy it. Um, helps the surgery center. Uh, but the biggest challenge with doing skin cancer in Mohs is it undermines your surgical practice. So it sounds like you you're doing a, a kind of a mix now of, you know, injectables but also the you know surgical stuff as well right yeah um all of the surgery i do is you know the typical facial rejuvenation stuff and rhinoplasty um you know some scars here and there 
earlobe stuff. A lot of people in Portland have very, you know, big stretched gauged earlobes. And so <laughs> repairing that is something that I, I didn't previously have any exposure to. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's been super fun. I mean, to go back to one thing that you mentioned that I think is an extremely important point uh, when choosing a practice is having somebody that isn't going to try and steal patients because I know some I'm not going to name names. Yeah, that happened. But that has happened. Yeah. And so the senior guy who's like super established uh, was actually poaching patients from the junior guy, which is ridiculous. Like if you're that it's established, that's all. You know, <laughs> we've seen that with like our fellows when they're in university and like the, you know, one of the senior attendings is poaching, you know, a mandible because it's got insurance. I mean, how do you do that to a fellow? Well, also, how do you do that to a junior guy who's got a young family? I just can't, I can't get my head around it. I don't know. I think there's, you know, I don't know if it's ego. Um, you know, I don't know if it's uh, if it's money, but it does happen. And I think you made a good point, you know, really, really asking the questions, because when you find the right person who is willing to give things up, who's happy to have you there, um, is not greedy, is reasonable. Um, you have a, a, a you know, a, a recipe for success. but I've seen so many junior people join senior people who um you know buy a bill of goods for example you know i'm getting ready to retire and in in reality they're you know 10 years later they're still hanging on to every last runner place they get their, you know, get get involved with so you don't get that sense at all from dr kim that's great i don't he's been super generous and it's you know he's kind of let me we both sort of maintain our own social media things and our own websites and stuff like that and they're still obviously linked to each other but it's it's you know I I have the freedom to change things as I want to and talk about whatever I want to and that's rare I would say um, to find someone that's very comfortable in their own shoes where they don't they don't feel threatened by the junior person and I think the best way you have of ensuring that is that the person's busy I think if the senior guy was or girl was not busy then yeah maybe that's where you run into trouble. Good point. You know it's a good point because if the senior person is really really busy. They're just not, they're, they're not going to care as much. And and also at some point, how, what's uh, Dr. Kim's age at this point? Uh, gosh, it's probably like late forties. Yeah. So he's still got a, 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 a lot of career left. Absolutely. He's still got, because the other thing is sometimes people, you know, that doesn't happen because people don't want to give it up because they feel like they still have a lot of career and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, What's been, what's probably your biggest, like, what's, what are the things that keep you up at night? What are you, what's your biggest struggle? Yeah. I mean, at this point, honestly, it's just mastering my craft, right? So uh, preservation rhinoplasty is something I'm really trying to expand, um, you know, deep plane facelifts and all of the deep neck work and all this new stuff. That's kind of the glands and managing the digastrics and all this kind of stuff that that's really what I'm focused on at this point. So it's really nice to be able to be in a position where I don't have to worry about the business stuff and can really just focus on the surgical stuff. That's the stuff that I, that I obsess over and that I pour over at night. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, you know, they, not to get too technical with this is because this is more of an aesthetic business podcast, but it's interesting what's going on with the neck these days, you know, I go back and forth. I've done, you know, some mandibular work. And uh, I had a woman today that we saw. She's about three or four months out. And you can just see the hint of her submandibular gland on one side, right? And I do, and yet she's fussing and fussing. She otherwise has, you know, I do an extended deep plane. I go all the way out to the buccal fat pad. I go all the way out, you know, along the mandible. And 
I would say, you know, maybe one in 20 patients, I'll take out the anterior aspect of the submandibular gland. And I still, I still question whether it makes sense. And I had this conversation with my fellow today. I like, look, you know, Brian Mendelson, who's in Australia, who's a, a world-class anatomist, he gives a talk about, you know, how I almost killed a patient, right? And it was a patient, he did their submandibular glands and in the recovery room, they just blew up and it was, you know, one of the little branches of facial artery. I think I'm pretty good at, and I've done enough to sec cadaver dissections and I've you know, taken them out. But I, I said to the fellow, I said, you know, <clears throat> is it, she otherwise has this amazing result you know, is it worth doing work on the submandibular glands? I don't know the answer. You know, I do them from time to time. Uh, but there are those people where you don't see the glands and then you do a beautiful deep line lift because you pull the things, everything's tight. You do see a little bit and they weren't there before. So I don't know the answer to that. I do know that a number of us who have a ton of experience with this stuff still feel it's not worth it. But um, it'll be interesting to see where this all goes, right? Yeah, I mean, I love you know. Again, I don't want to get into the surgical details, but uh, it's it's a really fun conversation to be you know kind of seeing play out in real time. You got your people on both coasts talking, you know, about their uh, own way of doing things. But um, it's yeah, it's it's a really fun conversation. And I like you. I'm still you know. There's little things. I'm obviously way. You've been doing this you know longer than I've been you know alive. But uh, for me, it's just uh, it's, it's fun to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I have a, you know, a son-in-law who's joining me and a daughter who's, who's an ophthalmologist. So yeah, we might be off by a year or two, but yeah, I've been doing this a long time. Um, yeah, which is kind of the fun. It's kind of the fun part of it and seeing, seeing the next generation. What did, you know, what would you, if you went back and looked at, you know, the younger, younger version of Pivila, what would you, what would you tell them? Maybe 10. So let's say, let's say, you're picking, you're going into residency. What would you tell the younger version of yourself now based on what you know? Yeah, um, man, so many things. <laughs> I think the the biggest thing is just to just, it's always, when you look back and do these kind of things, I always used to kind of joke about this in residency and you hear these people talk about like, oh, the last 20 years of their research or whatever, and how it's basically a straight line from A to B and like, oh, when I was a, you know, an intern, I figured out this and blah, blah, blah. It never, that's, that's all fairy tales, right? Like no one actually has a path like that. And if they do, then they're great storytellers, but like, that's usually not how things go, right? So it's just, it's always sort of like, you kind of know where the goal is and you try and head towards that. And then along the way, you end up kind of figuring some stuff out, right? And I think you know just trust yourself and trust sort of um that there's a reason why you may feel like i'm very much a gut person and make a lot of decisions i'll, I'll kind of weigh ups and downs and you know kind of think about pivots and things like that but at the end of the day it's really a gut thing and um looking back i would just say just just trust your gut right um but it's very much not a straight line like this is it, it, there are if you would have asked me 10 years ago if i'd be here in portland doing what i'm doing now absolutely not i mean this is it's is all kind of like sort of in a way happened but like very much a, a result of conscious decisions made along the way that i just didn't know about beforehand yeah it's crazy right it's crazy where do you think is the future of our industry what are your predictions you know, and I got to tell you, I, I have seen such a drastic change in our industry. I almost don't recognize it. Um, 
you know, I don't want to sound like it, but where do you think it's going? I mean, let's just set the backdrop. Affordable care passes. And I actually predicted this in one of my um, presidential pieces uh, in 2015. The Affordable Care Act happens. Primary care docs, internal medicine got screwed. Okay, they all thought they're going to do better out of this deal. And now more and more of them hate their life. More and more of them are joining aesthetic medicine. More and more because we now flooded the system with extenders. You know, they all want to do what Dr. Vila is doing. Where do you think this is going? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Out of those of us who have vested so heavily in this, I've been doing facial facial aesthetics for 30 years. And now all of a sudden I see the world-renowned Beverly Hills, you know, nurse injector. I mean, honestly, seriously? Like, you know, <laughs> all going. Yeah. So I do think, and, you know, I was involved with this stuff as a resident with the ENT Academy, but I do think the um, doctors as a field are not awesome at advocacy. And part of that is because, you know, surgeons are busy with their practice and worried about their patients and worried about, you know, their practice and managing their staff and all that, which is time consuming and difficult and requires a lot of attention. I do think as a field, it is easy to be complacent with what's happening nationally. And I do think that, you know, whether it's the nurses, whether it's the same things happening in the anesthesia world with CRNAs, you know, they want to call themselves nurse anesthesiologists. And so like all these things, you know, not that there aren't great CRNAs out there, but it's just like the the physician assistants. They want to be a physician associate. Last time I checked, sorry to be, you know, but, you know, you're not associates of mine. You are, there's the grind that we go through is a real grind for not two or three years. It's 10 or 12 or 15. I mean, I went off to school when I was 18. I didn't start, I didn't make a buck until I was 33 years old. And by the way, it's not just the, it's not a rite of passage thing. I'm not going to be, you know, be so uh, so patriarchal to say that. Okay. There's a difference. Like when my wife goes to see a dermatologist and for six months, she doesn't see a dermatologist because there's something that, you know, I've been dealing with skin for 30 years. Right. So it kind of pisses me off that she doesn't see an MD and not to take away, but where's this all going? And especially, I mean, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, listen, there are plenty of people doing excellent work out there. And I think, I um, I, I don't disagree with that. I think the important thing is for us to remember that everyone, including, you know, non-physicians are advocating heavily. And so if we are not sort of advocating in return for claiming things that, you know, maybe should be ours, that's going to get taken away because the, you know, I've been to Congress, I've been and sat with the staffers. It's amazing. Like, you know, with Jordan Sand, Jordan Sand's up in Spokane, Washington. And, um, good friend of mine. And so we, we were both involved with the ENT Academy. So we, as residents, we both went um, with the section for residents as fellows, the SRF. So I was, you know, in charge of that for a while, whatever. So we, we go and sit down with these staffers to talk about like student loan debt, for example. And the response from the staffers was hilarious because they all went to law school and they're all in a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. So they're like, what's a couple hundred, do- a couple hundred thousand dollars, like get out of our office, like whatever, right? Like your doctor is going to make plenty of money, get out of here. So it's just it's just a different like the way the conversation is sort of 
perceived to the non-physician is very different than, you know, talking to another surgeon, another physician, because they get it, right? So it's about communicating with people who are not in the system. It's the same way that like hospital systems are run by non-physicians, right? And so the decisions that are made are not usually to the benefit of physicians. That's why so many people are leaving hospital systems and getting squeezed and all the stuff. So, you know, maybe we need more physician leadership. How do we do what's best for our patients? And how do we not just become provider one, two, six? You know, I, I mean, think about that because, and, and this is not, look, I'm not, don't take this, I'm not like trying to bash other, you know, specialties and people, but I do feel, and, and you know, there's, listen, there's facial plastic surgeons I'm embarrassed of. You know, they're, um, how do we differentiate ourselves to our patients? And how do we do what's best for our patients? Right, right. And I think we're good at that part. I think surgeons have always, you know, the, the really successful facial plastic surgeons out there are doing a great job at doing that, right? I think what maybe we could be doing better as a field is providing a little more leadership at the national level, at the, you know, government level, you know, just in terms of interacting with the other players at the table. And, and you know, I'm still very early in my career. I'm not at the, that table. I'm not at that. I'm not having those conversations. But I think it's important not to forget that that is extremely important to us and we always need to be sort of a part of that conversation. Yeah, I mean, that that in taking the high road, making sure the people that work with you and for you are, are um, you know, are, are well-trained and, and, you know, because, yeah, and making sure that, so that the outcomes are consistent because there are a lot of people claiming to do things that they really are not that great at you know what if so if you were um what questions do you have i mean what questions do you have for me like is there anything like you're thinking and then you know what is the future for you you know are there any things that you're like thinking about like how do i deal with the next five years you know with my business arrangement those sorts of things yeah i mean i would love to hear from you in terms of having you know dr slaughter and some other people What's your, what was the point where you were like, okay, now I, it's time to bring someone else on? Like, what was that switch for you in your mind? Well, I think it's very similar to Dr. Kim. I mean, at some point, we worked really hard to build what we have. And at some point, I need to become less relevant. I mean, if I want, because I can always make more money i can always but i can't make more time and as long as you're willing to share and be fair and reasonable then it starts a conversation and and i think uh one of the, the advice i would give people is get plenty of uh do your homework on the front end i mean our whole track the partnership is all laid out we open up the books i do i share it all i see so many arrangements where it's not well thought out and then it becomes a contentious conversation down the road. And I think that the advice I would give people, whether they're in your shoes or Dr. Kim's shoes, is make sure you really get some guidance. You know, he's entitled to get paid for the equity he has, and you're entitled to not overpay. And that's really what it comes down to. And there's ways to look at all that. Um, fairly, by the way, that don't... But I... I see so many, I would dare say 80, 90% of arrangements fall apart after a few years because um, there's not good communication. So that's the other pearl there is, is crystal, crystal clear, um, intentional communication. 
between the parties, not only on where we're going, but how that's what it's going to look like and, you know, and that sort of thing. And there's always there's ways to do it. Um, the traditional valuation of medical practice is, a, is erroneous at best. You know, factoring all this goodwill. And I mean, our, our when our people come in and look at stock, there is nothing for goodwill. There's nothing for furniture because that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the return on investment. And, you know, if someone could go and borrow money from the bank for even now, 6% and get a 20% return as part of a shareholder, you know, it's a no brainer. But those things really need to be looked at well in advance. Um, any other, you know, thoughts? And I'm going to let you go soon because you, you know, already given me 45 minutes of your time. Um, any other, you know, any other questions you have for me as you start, you know, going forward? And I would, first of all, I'm going to encourage you to stay involved with the academy because it's really important. You know, we we are our brothers and sisters. But um, any other questions you have for me as you start to see where your future goes? Yeah, so you've talked a little bit about this in the past, as, and I have a question more mainly about just what you do surgically. Um, you decide you've done hair in the past, and then Dr. Slaughter, that was kind of his. Yeah, so do you still do that, or you decided no, to hand it off? Done, you know, I, I, and I talked to my buddy Vito Cortella, and he still does a lot of hair. And he's like, Ed, for you to time, there's nothing better. But the reality is, I realized I had to give something up. No, so I gave up hair in 2020, 2022. 2003. So it's been a few years now. Um, but I did, I did it for 10 years. I did a lot of hair. But I did give that up. I, and I gave up all the insurance stuff. And I basically told Slaughter from the beginning, look, I'm not going to market you for aging, face, and rhinoplasty. But if those patients ask for you, you get them. And, you know, he's doing he's doing facelifts here and there. And he's, he's busy as hell. I mean, um, but I was willing to give things up. COVID hit. And it was all his. I mean, you know, he. So I think it's important not to poach. You make a deal, you make a deal. I mean, maybe one of the things that were, really helped me as I lived pretty conservatively my first many years invested well, and I don't need it. So I'm not going to steal from somebody. I, I I don't need a lifestyle. You know, I don't. I don't have. Some people live so far into their lifestyle that they have to have that. And then that's that's the greed factor, you know. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy. And, and, you know, I think it's important for a senior. Like, I, I get a kick out of seeing him develop his career. I get a kick out of seeing him do well. Um, and maybe that's just, you know, who I am. But trying to find a mentor, someone who you can kind of tell. I think you said that earlier, you know, by your gut. You know, you can tell who's genuinely a substance versus someone who is more about what they're driving. You know, I don't really care what I drive. Um, to me, I care about my family. I care about the people, you know, that I work with. I do care a lot about the people I work with. They mean a lot to me. Um, so, but these are, these are really complicated discussions as you start joining a part, because you're talking about moving to Portland, right? I mean, that's a big deal, moving your whole family and, uh, putting in roots, investing in a community that if it doesn't work out, you get to start over. Right. Yep, no, that's that's absolutely true. It's a huge, huge risk, which you know, again, it was calculated risk, but big risk for sure. Any, any, um, you know, pearls or things you'd want to share with someone who's where you were five years ago? Yeah, I, I guess keep an open mind is what I would say because I think for me, 
I was always Mr. Academic and, you know, the research and all this. And it, I never really would have seen myself in this spot, but it's partly because I wasn't exposed to it early on. Um, but, you know, like maybe if I'd seen Dr. Nyack or, you know, as an intern, I would have, you know, decided on this stuff sooner. But it wasn't until I really started operating that I really realized, like, hey, I, I love this anatomy. I love these type of surgeries. This is really cool. Um, so I kind of decided late in the game this is what I was going to do. But um, just to keep an open mind, because I think when you when you're so sort of pigeonholed into one thing, um, you may not see other opportunities that are actually pretty great opportunities. And so, um, you know, that's I think just you're allowed to, like, have a goal and stick to it. Right. But like you can change your mind, too. That's OK. Well, look, thanks a lot for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm going to I'm going to just stop the report here and you are going to chat for a second. But uh, thanks so much. I mean, I think this is really helpful for the younger people who really have no one to talk to. Um, but I mean, there's there's so many opportunities. And right. I I thought I wanted to do academics once upon a time. And who yeah, did I talk and, to? And again, just thank yeah. you for doing this, because, again, there is no other place where you have such a good collection of knowledge and wisdom about how to do this how do you navigate like we don't talk about the stuff in training so this podcast and just this the talks and the business forum is phenomenal you know like those are great things for young facial plastic surgeons to really sort of yeah. increase their knowledge about the other stuff it's also important to do it without industry influence because you're getting a filtered message you know and not, not anything against them it's that's it's their job but um, you know, we need to talk about the things that we don't do well, right? Where we failed and that sort of thing. So thank you so much, Peter, for joining me.